Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Will Sipling, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. R.J. Snell and Dr. Robert P. George about their new book, Mind, Heart, and Soul, Intellectuals and the Path to Rome. Professor George holds Princeton's celebrated McCormick Chair in Jurisprudence and is the director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. His many books include In Defense of Natural Law, Making Men Moral, Embryo, A Defense of Human Life, and many more. He holds multiple graduate degrees from Harvard University and Oxford University. Professor Snell directs the Center on the University uh, and Intellectual Life at the Witherspoon Institute in Princeton, New Jersey. Prior to this appointment, he was Professor of Philosophy and Director of of the Philosophy Program at Eastern University and the Templeton Honors College, where he founded and directed the Agora Institute for Civic Virtue and the Common Good. He holds graduate degrees from Boston College and Marquette University. RJ and Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, Thanks for having us, Will. Yeah, very good to be with you, Will. Thank you. And good to be on the uh, New Books uh, Network. Uh, I learned about New Books uh, Network from my uh, friend Hope Lehman, and I've become a fan. So it's uh, it's a real pleasure and honor to be interviewed on the network, especially by you, Will. It's a pleasure to have you all. New Books Network is one of my favorite sources to find new books, so I'm glad others will learn about this book here, too. I gave you both a very short introduction on two very long and successful careers. Anything that you both want to add? Any gaps you might want to fill? Well, I'd just point out that uh, RJ's career is not all that long. He's still a youngster. Uh, (laughs) I've been around for a while. (laughs) But I'm delighted uh, to be uh, here in Princeton uh, with my colleague, RJ Snell. Uh, We work together at the Witherspoon Institute. Uh, We're actually teaching together at Princeton University uh, this this semester. And it was a real privilege to work with RJ uh, on this book. Uh, RJ is himself a convert. I'm I'm a cradle Catholic, or as I like to say, I was converted at eight days old at my baptism. Uh, since all Catholics are converts, all Christians are converts. Uh, but uh, RJ's had that uh, experience, so um, it was good to be working on this particular project with someone who himself was a convert, and indeed one who was led to the faith in no small part by uh, by intellectual reflection. So you both are coming at this from your own distinct experiences, and you both are obviously very much involved in the intellectual life. But what specifically brought you both together? What 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 culminated and caused this book to come forth? Yeah, thank you for that question. RJ here. I think we have a, a sense that the intellectual life for Christians is an important part of the faith, that it's not something which is set set aside or irrelevant to the faith. And at a time when so many seem to be walking away from faith, you know, the rise of the the so-called rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, where people seem to be departing from faith or from orthodoxy, a sense that the faith remains robust and reasonable to believe, and not only in the abstract, but in the concrete. All of these young men and women, in my experience, as as a teacher of of students uh, and other academics that I know, very intelligent, smart people, very accomplished people, turning to the faith as a resource, not merely for solace or for comfort, which it can be, of course, but as a place of truth. And we wanted to make sure that those stories were not forgotten and to offer a bit of encouragement to those who sometimes wonder what's going on in the world and in the church, uh, that the truth is still out there. The truth doesn't change. It can be appropriated in different ways. uh, And you can learn from the story of others. I would add to that. It's Robert here. 
uh, that the Catholic understanding of these matters is that faith and reason are not enemies. Uh, they're not even in tension. Uh, faith and reason are, as Pope John Paul II famously said in the very first sentence of his great encyclical on faith and reason, Fides et Ratio, faith and reason are the two wings on which the human spirit ascends to contemplation of the truth. On the Catholic understanding of faith and of reason, uh, we can't have the one without the other. <laughs> Uh, they are two halves of the same whole. They're interpenetrated. Uh, the life of faith and the life of uh, reason are not two separate lives. They're like body and soul, uh, hylomorphically <laughs> united. Uh, and, and I think this is an important part of uh, Catholicism, that uh, it's important that we hand on to our children and that we make the, make the world know about. So the idea of, of a book that features the stories of intellectual converts fits very well into that Catholic understanding of the relation of faith and reason. And so the the format of the book really follows something like an interview format. So it's meet and write that we're here doing this today. Is there a particular reason you decided to go with interviews and not just say essays or theological treatises about conversion and intellectuals? Not only are the interview format, but there are multiple interviewers. So there are 16 interviews um, and there are, there are almost 15 people doing the interviews, many of whom themselves are converts and, and all of whom have uh, intellectual prestige and gifts in their own way. I think what we wanted to do in, was to make sure that the personal voice came through. Um, that while these are intellectuals and while faith and reason are never in contradiction or tension, they are nonetheless real people who with real questions and problems and a, a struggle on their journey home. And we wanted to hear that in their own voice as, as opposed to a, you know, a formal apologetics treatise or even an essay form, which tends to work to be more formal than, than maybe we wanted. But then we also wanted to make sure that we had multiple interviewers so that the full range of questions that, that many people have thought about as they, as they consider the church uh, became apparent and, and exposed. Uh, Robert here, uh, my own background and training is in philosophy. Uh, I teach in the area of philosophy of law and in moral and political philosophy. And uh, my education, my graduate education in philosophy was at Oxford University, which was and is the sort of world headquarters of the particular approach to philosophy that's known as analytic philosophy. And um, as a person working in that domain, uh, I've always been struck by the fact that some of the greatest uh, philosophers some of the greatest Catholic philosophers, most of the greatest Catholic philosophers, certainly in the analytic tradition uh, in the 20th century, uh, were converts. They were intellectual converts. I have in mind people like Elizabeth Anscombe, uh, Michael Dummett, uh, Peter Geech, John Finnis, uh, Nicholas Rescher, uh, Alastair McIntyre. Uh, and I've always thought it would be lovely to hear their personal stories. Now, some of them I know were new personally and, and did have opportunities to talk uh, with them about what brought them uh, to Christian faith and to Catholic uh, faith. And I appreciated that and always wanted to hear the stories of those that I wasn't able to actually chat with or didn't know. So the idea of the, of the interview format struck me as, as valuable because of that sense that I had of how good it is to hear somebody tell his or her own story and to, be ha and to have the opportunity to ask him or her questions along the way. And the interview format really works to get something across, I think, as I've noticed here. And as you've mentioned, 
you both have mentioned, you have uh, news reporters, you have a bishop in the Catholic Church, you have a concert pianist. It seems, though, that intellectuals, no matter where they're coming from, public speakers or news presenters, there, there do seem to be some kind of classic hangups. There, there are these threads that you tend to follow, whether it's a Catholic Marian theology or the papacy. In, in terms of how you've addressed these issues in the books by, by, the, by means of leading questions, if you were to see Protestants reading this book, which I imagine you would, would they walk away from reading it and feel that some of those questions, like I said about Mariology or the papacy, are answered by reading this book? Or is the appeal somewhere else? Well, I hope they will see honest grappling with the questions and fair-minded articulation of the usual Protestant objections to those positions. So each many of the thinkers will pose in their own voice their history of struggle with a particular doctrine, the papacy, Marian doctrine, or so on. And while the the format doesn't lend itself to a point-by-point refutation or answer of the usual objections, you do get to see an intelligence at work and a calm, reflective intelligence at work, someone who has had maybe months or years now to, to think about what happened in their own mind and the arguments and responses that made sense. So while you wouldn't expect this to be an apologetic text, that's not its format or its intention, you do get to see minds who are passionately concerned with the truth work through out loud, as it were, how they thought it through. And I think that should be helpful. I would add uh, to that that this is not a polemical book in any way. It's not an anti-Protestant book. It's not directed negatively at, uh, at anybody at all. It's just an opportunity for people to tell their stories. And as RJ says, uh, in some cases, those stories are stories of wrestling with uh, hangups or with objections that uh, initially sounded uh, impressive. Maybe for many years, uh, people thought uh, were impressive, at least strong enough to, to, to keep them from finally uh, entering the church, although eventually they did. That's how they made it into the book. <laughs> but in some cases, I think it's worth pointing out the doctrines that are hangups for some people or the teachings or aspects of the church that are hangups for some people were the attraction for others. There's a very strong hint from Professor Adrian Vermeule, the great Harvard Law School scholar, who's one of the interview subjects here, who actually has an essay. Actually, it's, a one, it's one of the exceptions because it's an essay. He tells his story in an essay rather than interview format. He uh, throws a very strong hint that, uh, that it was Marian devotion that was partially at least responsible for attracting him to the church. I'll give you another example. Uh, for some people, especially today and in, in our time because of the dominance of uh, secular progressive ideology when it comes to marriage and sexuality, for some people, Catholic teaching uh, that marriage is the conjugal union of husband and wife and that sex belongs in marriage and does not belong outside of marriage is a hang-up. It's a problem. But for a person like Hadley Arcus, the great Amherst uh, College uh, professor of uh, political philosophy and jurisprudence, Far from being uh, a hang-up, it was the thing that attracted him to the church. What uh, what kept him from entering for many years had nothing to do uh, with uh, with with that. He found the church's uh, solidity, its uh, its uh, uh, stand of firmness on questions of sexuality and marriage and the sanctity of human life to count as very heavy evidence that the church was indeed what the church claims to be the mystical body of Christ, the church established by uh, Christ him, him, himself, the church that is in continuity uh, with, uh, with God's self-revelation going all the way back to the earliest parts of the Bible. 
for Hadley, the, the church remains a truth-telling institution, maybe the truth-telling institution. And some of those truths are difficult for some to hear, but for Hadley, it was a mark that the, the bearer of the truth should be listened to. Yes, that's exactly right, RJ. And uh, it's worth mentioning, I think, that uh, Hadley says specifically, and here he's quoting one of the people who influenced him to enter the Catholic Church, Dermot Quinn, uh, who's a professor of uh, history at, uh, at Seton Hall University, and as it happens, was my exact contemporary as a graduate student in Oxford. But uh, Professor Quinn said to Professor Arcus, as Professor Arcus was contemplating what he should do and whether he should become a Catholic, he said, you know, you can believe everything that the church teaches as far as the specific doctrinal and moral teachings and not be a Catholic yet. It's when you understand that the church has authority to teach those things, that it teaches them truly because it has a charism, a gift from God to teach the truth. That's when you have become a Catholic and it's time to officially become a Catholic by getting yourself baptized or received fully into communion uh, with the church. And that was an important moment uh, for, for, for Hadley when he uh, was persuaded by Professor Quinn that uh, to, to be a Catholic is to believe that the church is a truth-telling institution. And Hadley reflected and said, you know, I believe that. It's not an accident that the church does tell the truth about marriage and sexuality and the sanctity of human life. It's a truth-telling institution. And that means I can rely on it to tell the truth in other areas. It's telling the truth about the person of Jesus Christ. I can rely on it to tell the truth about Mary, the mother of God. I can rely on its fundamental claims because the church is a truth-telling reality or institution. To play off that just a little bit, I think one of the, the forms of spirit that we were hoping would come through in the book, and I, I think that it does, is that while the, the people who are interviewed, and in, indeed us, believe that the church is a truth-telling institution, there is a sense of the generosity of the church, that there are other speakers of truth as well, including a, a deep gratitude that I see in many of the people that we interviewed for their former exposures to the faith, uh, whether they grew up in a Protestant community or, or, or uh, outside the faith in some way, a sense that they did not need to repudiate what came before but attained something which had already been there in an inkling or an inchoate way. Uh, so I think there's a deep spirit of gratitude that you see in the text as opposed to a, a polemical move. Or That is so true. Uh, that is so true, RJ. Uh, you see it again in Hadley's case, his appreciation of his own Jewish heritage. In fact, Hadley uh, does not call himself a convert to Catholicism uh, because he sees Catholicism as in continuity with the faith, the tradition into which he was born, to that ancient covenant that God has with the, with the Jewish people, the people that are Hadley's people and remain Hadley's people. Hadley would never say, I'm not Jewish. And when he says that, when he says, I'm Jewish and I remain Jewish, he doesn't just mean in an ethnic sense that his religion is still rooted in the Jewish witness. Yeah, as, and for us as well. As indeed, it's an important lesson for all Gentiles. It, it was once said, and I think truly, that with, all Christians are at least Jewish. Yeah, right. Yeah, at least <laughs> yeah. Jewish. I like that. Well, Robert, you find yourself within Hadley's story. I'm looking right now at page 155. As he's wrestling with this idea of conversion, you tell him, why don't you let your friends know that you're coming into the church? Your friends would want to know about it. You're highlighting here something very communal about conversion, that it isn't just uh, 
you know, if one goes from liking one particular philosopher to liking someone else, it's something bigger than that. Tell us more about the communal aspect involved in conversion. Well, uh, this too is in continuity uh, with the Jewish people and with Jewish faith. Um, For many people today who are heavily influenced by secular progressive ideology, individualism is just part of the package. So when a, when a baby is born, for example, they see the baby as a tabula rasa, uh, as what Michael Sandel calls an unencumbered self. Michael doesn't approve of us thinking of ourselves as unencumbered selves, but he points out that, uh, the, that the mainstream ideology of our day, secular ideology of our day, treats human beings as unencumbered selves, selves until they make choices and therefore encumber themselves with commitments that they make and contracts and uh, arrangements with other people. But they, they begin as individuals and they are throughout their lives most fundamentally choosers. Well, uh, Christianity, at least in its Catholic form, in continuity with Judaism, does not see individuals, persons, as tabula rasas or as as bare individuals or as unencumbered selves. So look at the Jewish tradition. When a, when a baby is born, a male baby, for example, born to a Jewish family, the Jewish family doesn't look at that baby as a future chooser who may someday decide to become Jewish or be Jewish and someday decide to be something else. No, they see that baby as a member of the Jewish family, as a member of, first of all, that particular family born to that mom and dad with those grandparents and those cousins, but also part of the larger reality, the community uh, of the Jewish people. And so uh, the baby is properly, um, if it's a male baby, properly circumcised to bring the child within the ancient covenant covenant uh, that God has with the, with the Jewish people. Now, for a lot of individualists and secular liberals, uh, that's a problematic thing at best. There are people, for example, who oppose um, uh, circumcision, even for religious purposes with Jews and some Muslims, uh, because they say that's a violent act on a baby who didn't choose it. We should wait until the baby's 18 years old, and then the baby can decide whether to be circumcised or not. But parents should not be allowed to force this on the child. But that's looking at the child as an unencumbered self, as a future chooser, as uh, someone abstracted from the community into which he's born. Where the Jewish point of view is that, no, you're born already encumbered. You're born already as a member of a community. You're not an atomized radical uh, individual. Yes, someday you will have choices to make, including a choice whether to stay in or stay out. You have religious freedom and so forth. But we, we operate not as isolated individuals, but as persons. And persons are always persons in community with others. That's why we baptize children as Catholics. We don't say, nope, nope, that's not right. Can't baptize children until they're 12 years old and make their own decision or 18 years old and make their own decision. That's not the Catholic view. We think that you can actually have responsibilities that come, like baptismal promises, creating responsibilities, by virtue of someone else on your behalf with whom you are in relationship, because persons are always persons in relationship, making uh, making that decision. So my point to Hadley was that uh, we shouldn't think of ourselves even as we're deciding whether to come into the church, or certainly when we've made the decision to come into the church, as isolated individuals at all, but already as members of that particular community, the community of faith, the community of Christian faith, the community of, 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 uh, of Catholic faith. We are not isolated. We are parts of each other. We are inherently, integrally connected uh, to one another. Now, this is not to sacrifice our individuality or have it absorbed into, into something beyond ourselves. 
But it means to be who we are is to be who we are in communion with others, in community with others. You see similar or analogous threads in several of the interviews where a sense of membership or belonging it plays a pivotal role, whether it's to belong to an intellectual tradition or to belong to a universal community or to belong to the communion of saints, a sense that to enter into the Catholic Church is to enter into an objective fact. She welcomes you into the fold, but she precedes you and clears the way for you. That's a powerful experience for many converts. Yeah. Let's talk sort of pivoting in some ways when there's a conversion that isn't quite as going from one extreme to the other. I'm thinking about in the book, the very next interview with Timothy Fuller, who's a professor of political science at uh, Colorado College, who his background was what one might call high church Anglicanism or Anglo-Catholicism, wherein, as the title says, he uh, came home into the Roman Catholic Church by standing still as it were. So it seems that some converts as well um, find their way into Catholicism, not through perhaps a a crisis of faith or uh, leaving behind, say, evangelicalism, but by aligning themselves with something that they had kind of already aligned with. Maybe you could tell us more about this phenomenon of this particular kind of convert. You see that certainly in his interview and, and maybe with particular intensity in the interview with Father Michael Ward, who was himself an ordained Anglican priest who now is a priest of the, the ordinariate, the Anglican ordinariate, and so a, the a, Catholic, a, a Catholic Church. A Catholic yeah. church. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, there you have an experience of, of someone who's an Anglican or an Episcopalian who already believes in apostolic succession, who already believes in many of the councils. There's some disputes about when the councils, the universal or ecumenical councils end. Uh, certainly much of the liturgy is the same. Uh, the for, many of the form, forms will look very similar, sometimes different theological understandings. And very often there, there's a sense of recognizing what has already been known or a sense of the fullness of the thing which had been seen through through the glass darkly is now starkly manifest, as opposed to a, a, a real sense of theological conversion or change, uh, but more of a, a fullness of instantiation or a density to what they already knew. Uh, I would add that... Uh... Uh, for those in the book and for many converts, of course, the vast majority of converts are not in the book. Their stories are not in the book, but I think this is true for the vast majority. Some are pulled into the church by the appeal of the church itself. Uh, others are pushed into the church by things that go on uh, in their own uh, traditions. So many uh, people in the Episcopal church, for example, or the Anglican church uh, or some of the other Protestant uh, uh, churches uh, who had been perfectly comfortable in their own uh, previous communions, uh, found themselves moving in the direction and finally entering the Catholic Church because things were going on in their own churches. Teachings were being changed. Women's ordination would be an example. Many Anglicans or Episcopalians as a result of the decision uh, to um, change the understanding of the priesthood as an all-male priesthood. Many of them ended up uh, leaving and becoming uh, Catholic. Same when churches... Uh, some of the uh, liberal mainline Protestant churches, uh, including the Episcopal Church, changed its uh, its uh, some of its teachings on sexuality and marriage, leading again uh, many in the communion who had been perfectly comfortable there to say, "Well, this is the evidence that uh, that there's something very fundamentally wrong, defective 
uh, about where I am. It does not comport with what I think the Church of Jesus Christ uh, actually is. And uh, the Catholic Church remaining, um, from their point of view and mine, sound uh, on those kinds of issues led them to believe that that's the proper home for me. So some are pushed, some are pulled, and for some it's a combination of push and pull. What I find interesting about that as well is you mentioned something specific about women's ordination, but there are other social issues as well, which the Catholic Church holds positions on that seem in some ways to go against what might be popularly held in some intellectual circles. What in the book maybe would cover or respond to to that or maybe something that you would just like to add um, in terms of that particular uh maybe political or social slant of the Roman Catholic Church versus maybe uh, what you might see in most college campuses or university settings? Well, it's hard to um, categorize uh, Catholic teaching according to the standard categories of uh, contemporary American politics, uh, that is liberal or conservative, left-wing or, or, or right-wing. So I suppose from the perspective of, of a person who insisted on looking at things through the lens of American politics, you'd look at the church's teaching on the sanctity of human life and the need to protect unborn children, and you would say that's conservative. Uh, church must be a conservative institution. But if you look at the church's teaching on capital punishment and the death penalty, it's developed modern teaching, uh, which is uh, opposed to that or opposed to it at, except in the most uh, rare and unusual uh, cases. You would look at that and you would say that's progressive or that's liberal. The church must be a progressive or a liberal uh, institution. Uh, but as uh, the late Cardinal Francis George uh, rightly pointed out, the church is neither liberal nor conservative. It doesn't correspond to these kinds of political ca- contemporary political categories. The church teaches the truth. It's its job to teach the truth. It teaches it in season and out. And sometimes it'll offend against the sensibilities of one segment of the community and other times it'll push against the sensibilities of, of another. Now, I think where the church uh, uh, could be faulted is uh, in sometimes the poor quality of its catechesis. Many Catholics don't know what the church teaches about this or that issue, even hot-button moral issues. Many Catholics, it's hard for me to believe this, but many Catholics don't understand, at least fully, the church's teaching on the sanctity of human life. They don't understand fully the church's teaching against abortion. On the other side, don't understand the church's teaching against capital punishment. Um, the majority of Catholics, despite the teachings of the church, say, in the United States at least, that they believe in, in, in capital punishment. So they're actually going against the teaching of the church. So I think that we could do better as a church, and I don't cast the blame here exclusively on the bishops. I, I think all of us are the church, and therefore you know, we're all sharing in this blame. We could do a better job of, uh, of, of catechesis, explaining not only what the church teaches, but why the church teaches what it teaches, the rootedness of the church's teaching uh, in the saving, liberating uh, message of Jesus Christ, the message of the of the gospel. And yet, despite our failings and flaws, despite poor catechesis in so many cases, despite the scandals that we now know all too much about uh, that in my boyhood were were never spoken of or very rarely spoken of. Despite all that, it amazes me, RJ, to see so many outstanding people, uh, people of intellect, people of character, people of goodness, finding their way into the church. This is not a 
time when the church looks very pretty. The church is divided. Many Catholics defy the teachings of the church. Many Catholics don't understand the teachings of the church. Uh, Many Catholics have been implicated in some very bad things. Uh, The bishops have not done well at handling the the scandals, the scandals involving the priesthood, involving some bishops themselves. And yet the church has its appeal to so many wonderful people. And so at the Easter Vigil this year, uh, I'll be over at my uh, parish at St. Paul's and I will see an amazing group of people of all walks of life, all levels of intellectual attainment, all social and economic classes be welcomed into the embrace of Mother Church. The same will be true at the Princeton Chapel on the Easter Vigil. There'll be uh, young Princeton students entering the church. When I entered the church in 2013, one of the most frequent responses that I received when I told my Catholic friends was some variation of, come on in, the water is terrible. (laughs) Uh, You know, a sense of why would you do this just now? I mean, you can imagine some, some supposed glory days where it would be easy to enter the church, but just now? When things are are rough, my own sense is speaking to young men and women entering the church is they're entering with their eyes fully open. They know about the scandals. They know about the infidelities of some. They know about the lack of belief or the poor catechesis that occurs. And yet in their mind, the church exists as a truth-telling institution, as we mentioned earlier, as a sign of contradiction to some aspects of the culture which they believe to be harmful to human happiness and human well-being. Uh, And especially, and most interestingly, I think, as a uh, sign of hope, which is a theological virtue, a gift of God. You, You wouldn't sort of look at the statistics, perhaps, and find hope in the church. But if she is who she says she is, and if her Lord and Master is who he says he is, this is the the Ark of Hope. And many find that. You know, RJ, thinking about our students uh, and every year, a remarkable number of our students here at Princeton uh, who do not come from Catholic families uh, enter the church. I've noticed that uh, the intellectual tradition, that the the church has an intellectual and not simply spiritual uh, tradition, has a lot to do with that. And they're able to see past the last 20 years or the last 50 years or even the last 500 years and take in and be influenced by St. Thomas Aquinas, for example, St. Augustine. I I'd imagine that, that the figure responsible for the, the plurality of conversions or most responsible for the plurality of conversions among our Princeton undergraduates is St. Augustine. Uh, they run into him in classes with Eric Gregory or classes that are taught by you or Cornell West or me, uh, and they end up uh, uh, fascinated with Christianity and especially with uh, Catholic Christianity. And And sometimes it's not even... It's not even Catholic figures, but figures who, though not Catholic, have contributed and helped to shape the Catholic intellectual tradition who have an impact on students leading them into the Catholic Church. And there, I think, number one, the number one character, the number one figure is Plato. You, be, you begin reading Plato and you're on your way <laughs> into the Catholic way. Church. You're it's really, way. really quite remarkable. And it's, it, I think it's because of the questions that Plato raises, the deep, powerful, existential Questions And once those questions are raised, you can't put them back. It's like something you've seen that you can't unsee. Once those great existential questions of meaning and value and truth are raised, then you have to be searching for the answer. And then it's when the, the coherence and beauty of the church's teaching will impress you. If you, if you look at the teaching as it's exemplified and defended in the great thinkers like Augustine and Aquinas, Thomas More. John Henry Newman up to the 
contemporary period, some of the figures that, uh, that I mentioned earlier, people like Anscombe and McIntyre. Yeah, if the Holy Spirit is the hound of heaven, uh, as the poem puts it, which pursues individuals till they come home, uh, Plato is certainly in uh, the dog sled pulling alongside the Holy Spirit. You know, I've noticed also um, in recent years, um, some of the great female intellectual figures in the history of the church are influencing not only the girls, but the boys as well. Edith Stein has become a very important figure. Yeah, Edith Stein in part because Alistair McIntyre has paid her attention. Yeah. Uh, and of course, her own, her own story, uh, her, her own death and martyrdom plays a large role. Uh, I actually was going to mention women thinkers because Catherine of Siena, Teresa of Avila, Therese of Lisieux, and Edith Stein play an outsized role in, in many people's readings and imaginations just now. And in, Will, in response to your, your just previous question of w the church making moral claims, which seems unpalatable to so many in our society, that nonetheless, in, for some reason, for some people, is the reason to enter the church. One of the interviews we have is with Prudence Allen, uh, one of the great scholars of the history of women in the West, her, her massive project, multi-volume work called The Concept of, of Woman. She's uh, someone who's a great example of that, someone who traces out the history of thought in the West, both internal to, to Christianity and, and beyond into, into paganism as well, and sees that the church, which many people identify as a problem or as a cause or a contributor to the problem of the status of women, she sees the church as one of the great emancipators and defenders of the dignity of women. And even that there are women doctors of the church yeah. The great intellectual leaders, those we are to read with utmost trust and obedience in, in their intellect and their judgment, uh, including someone like Edith Stein and others um, who are taking seriously ideas of the feminine genius or the idea of women's intellectual life as not an ancillary role in the church, but right at the heart of the church's intellectual life and witness. So the Prudence Allen you know, interview, is, I, I find a very fascinating one on that point. Well, Prudence Allen is a magisterial uh, scholar and just such a great role model, model for, for all of us right. uh, in, the, uh, in the intellectual field. Uh, you mentioned St. Catherine of uh, Siena, and I've noticed uh, her figuring in the thought of a lot of uh, people who are thinking about the church today. Well, she's very tough. People yeah, like well, that. exactly. I think what uh, what makes her especially relevant today is, of course, she was distinguished for speaking truth to ecclesiastical power. When when those who are supposed to be the reliable teachers of the truth, those who are supposed to be the excellent role models, uh, go a bit astray or go weak or go wobbly, it's Catherine of Siena who stands up to them, not by uh, defying orthodox teaching, quite the opposite, but by in, insisting on it and insisting that they do their jobs and they play their roles and they do it right. She was obedient, but her obedience had a trajectory towards the ultimate authority. Yeah, uh, uh, we haven't talked about Dorothy Day, but one of the <laughs> one of the stories I like about uh, Dorothy Day uh, uh, is <laughs> is that she used to sign her letters to bishops sometimes by saying. Signing off her complimentary close was, your angry and obedient servant, Dorothy. <laughs> well, speaking of women, and obviously within this book, you have these, these great you know, women writers. You have Sister Prudence Allen, as you've mentioned. You have uh, public figures like Kirsten Powers, and you have Lucy Beckett interviewed by Erica Kidd, who is herself also a convert. But you also have kind of behind the scenes in this very Catholic imaginary, uh, the, the, the womanly figure of, uh, of Mary, the mother of, of, of Jesus, who 
was mentioned, as you said, by Adrian Vermeule, by Matthew Schmitz. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the role of Mary in, in the conversion process for intellectuals. RJ, did Mary figure in your own personal story? She did very much. So I grew up Baptist. Uh, in a community which didn't know very many Catholics, but we didn't like them because we, we, we knew that they uh, they smoked and drinked and chewed and went with girls who do, and they believed in Mary. And none of those were acceptable in our community. Uh, some of those you could do in private, but not public, but not the Marian. You could do that in private or public. It was interesting. I found myself at one point, not even close, the, making an intellectual move to entering the church. And I have many friends who tell similar stories surreptitiously into the cover of darkness doing the rosary. Not mm. sure why, not knowing how to do it, you know, read, needing to read instructions and fumbling over the prayers and not knowing what the mysteries were. But nonetheless, turning to Mother, turning to Our Lady, and finding really remarkable avenues of, of grace through that. The, the way that one would expect if you turn to Mom for help. And that's a very powerful existential experience. The the sense of the, the feminine care of the church or the feminine care of, of Our Lady uh, to whom we've all been given at the cross when, when Jesus commends her to John and, and John to her. There, there's a, an enormous series of iconography of Mary with book. We know that Mary is contemplative. We know that she ponders these things in her heart. And so to me, it seems perfectly natural that a, a hard-headed, analytical-type person who perhaps, this is a caricature, but we know people like this, who perhaps don't have um, an emotional approach to the world would nonetheless find Mary to be a conducive figure and a conduit into the church because she is not only the woman who suffers, but she is the mother of good counsel. She's a contemplative. She reads. She teaches Jesus. She helps him grow in wisdom and stature. Uh, so I find it, it entirely fitting that you would have someone who's governed by the intellect turn to Mary as a, a companion on the way. I think that's all very, very true. Uh, you mentioned the Catholic understanding of femininity. One of the things that uh, Catherine of Siena, again, uh, teaches us, shows us, is that Catholic femininity is not soft femininity. Right. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's tough-minded. Uh, it's tough. It's solid. Uh, a mother protects her children. I mean, there's nothing as uh, you, nothing more dangerous to be up against than than a than a tigress uh, whose cubs are are in danger. And if you're regarded as the danger uh, to the cubs, they can be very very tough indeed. Uh, and Mary herself is no pushover. I think sometimes even Catholics are mistaken about this. They think of Mary as a as a pushover. As Mary is soft. Um, She's not. She's she is tough. Uh, think of the very first uh, sign that Jesus performs at, at Cana in Galilee at the at the wedding feast. Uh, she notices there's a problem. There's a human need. The couple have run out of wine. And think of what an embarrassment in that particular culture at that particular time when you're you're putting on a wedding. Uh, what an embarrassment it would have been for the family uh, that's putting on the wedding to run out of wine. So she sees the need, uh, and uh, so she brings it to the attention of her son, knowing who he is. And how does he respond? Well, <laughs> doesn't look very well, actually. He says, woman, woman, my why do you 
bother me with this. And my, my time, time has not yet uh, not yet come. But what does she say? I, she, I love how she basically ignores him. Ignores it. Instructs the servants. Do what he tells you. Exactly. Do whatever knowing he Knowing <laughs> that he will do what she wants. Exactly right. And of course he does. And this does. is the first sign. John calls the, the miracle signs. They signify. They tell us about who Jesus is. But in that way, in that episode with that sign, it, he's also told us who Mary is. And she matters as an intercessor. You have a issue, you have a problem, go to Mary, take it to her mother, take it to mom, uh, have her bring it up with the Lord, which is not to say that we don't pray to Jesus or have a personal relationship with Jesus. Our, our evangelical Protestant friends couldn't be more right about the need for a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That is absolutely true. Uh, but we also have a relationship with Mary. She is an intercessor. Uh, she is that person at the wedding feast at Galilee who notices a need and knows that we need to need, meet that need and knows that Jesus is the person to go to to meet the need. Well, if you think of the, the story of the Dormition, yeah. they, they are gathered around her, the disciples are. Um, she becomes something of the center of the community, the center of yeah. uh, where things are happening. And they, they go to her in her need and in theirs. Yes, that's exactly right. Now, I, I think it's important, and, and I think some of our converts uh, in, in our book uh, note this. Um, it's important to understand that Catholics do not think of Mary as the fourth person of the blessed Quadrinity. Quadrinity. Or, quadrinity. Right, yes. <laughs> no, Mary is not. You heard God. it here first. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, so the, uh, uh, the the allegation that Catholics worship Mary is is false, and that misunderstanding I think has to be clarified. And, and Catholics who are tempted in the direction of that need to know that they're in error if they elevate Mary to the status of uh, Christ or to the status of of uh, of God. Yet I think it would help very much uh, Protestant Catholic. Mutual understanding. If uh, we were clear, and if, if if our Protestant friends understood that we're clear, that uh, that Mary is not God, and we do not worship uh, Mary, that that prayer to Mary is our intercessor, is our mother. Uh, she was given to all of us, not just to John, by Jesus Himself in the cross when He looked down at John and Mary. John being the only apostle who didn't flee in fear, who stood faithfully by the cross. Jesus looks down from the cross and says. Mother, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. She's speaking. He's speaking not just to John, but to all of us. She's, she's our mother. He's speaking to her, giving all of us as children to her. Well, as we're coming up on time, just one short question for both of you. What is at least one takeaway that you want readers to, to walk away from reading this book, knowing or being more clear about? One of the things we mentioned in the introduction is that for some of those interviewed, it is a very particular moment or a very particular intellectual figure or question who leads them, uh, which leads them into the church. And for others, there's nothing particular which stands out. It's the great symphony of the church which speaks. Uh, that's something that I like to, to remind uh, students or friends that I'm in con conversation with about the church, if, if they're considering entering the church or have questions about it is the church is a very large and generous reality. She's, she's an orchestra. The Franciscans are not the Dominicans. <laughs> neither are the Jesuits. 
and yet they all have a place within the church. There are various apostolates, there are various charisms. And while in, in this particular book, we look at those who have an intellectual apostolate, even those intellectuals enter the church in a variety of ways because God is gracious to meet people where they need and in light of the questions that they have. So there's many roads to get to Rome. The, the takeaway that, uh, that I would offer is this. Uh, many people uh, who are not in the church, not all, but many believe uh, that what the church asks us to do is to abandon or sacrifice reason or rationality, to give it up in, in, in return for, for faith. That couldn't be more false. In fact, it's the very reverse of the truth. The message that the church gives, as exemplified in the lives of the converts whom we uh, present in the book, is not to give up on reason, but to press on, press on, be as reasonable as you can be. Uh, it's reason that takes you uh, to faith. Reason doesn't deflect you from faith. Uh, it's unreasonableness that can do that. But the more reasonable you are, the better. And uh, the, the church uh, affirms reason. It, it, it embraces reason. It celebrates reason. It wants us to be as reasonable as possible. Uh, and in the case of these converts, the the unrestricted willingness uh, to follow the arguments where they lead, to be as reasonable as possible, led them into the church. And even when you become a member of the church, uh, when you're baptized or received into full communion, if you've been baptized in another Christian denomination, even when you enter the church, in no way are you asked to lay down reason or abandon it or give it up or sacrifice it. Again, quite the contrary, for the whole of the spiritual life, for the whole of your lives, the church's request or demand is be reasonable, seek truth, use the power of reason. Reason is a gift from God. It's a, it's a God-like power. Uh, when, the, when the scripture says in the very first chapter of the very first book in Genesis that God fashions man in his very image and likeness, each of us is a member of the human family is made in the very image and likeness of the divine creator and ruler of the universe. How are we godlike? Well, it's not because we have five fingers on each of two hands and hair on a head and a nose. It's because we have the godlike powers of reason and freedom. Our, our, our rationality and the freedom that comes with our rationality is not something to be rejected in favor of faith. It's something that is essential to the life of faith. Faith seeks understanding, wants to know. I would say that those takeaways are communicated quite clearly in Mind, Heart, and Soul, Intellectuals, and The Path to Rome. For that, it comes highly recommended. We've been talking today to R.J. Snell and to Robert P. George. I just wanted to say thank you to both of you for coming in today, and it's been a pleasure speaking to both of you. Thank you so much, Will. Yeah, thank you, Will. What a treat. 